Right, if you have your Bibles tonight, turn back to 1 Corinthians in the first chapter as we are still slowly making our way through the first chapter of this epistle. Uh, we come now to verse 19 is where our exposition will pick up. Um, as we've said, we're not, we're not in any rush to get through 1 Corinthians. We want to, to get every ounce of the goodness that's in this epistle Uh, We don't want to leave any stones unturned as we study 1 Corinthians. Uh, What just a a jam-packed chapter of truth, chapter 1, has already been for us. Uh, It amazes me how much God has uh, placed in His Word if we're just diligent to look for it. Thursday mornings uh, in the chapel service at school, at the school where I teach, I've been preaching through the book of Ruth. And I finished the book of Ruth last Thursday And we were in Ruth for 16 weeks, and we could have been in Ruth for longer. But that just just goes to show you, four four simple chapters. So now, don't do the math in your head, because you might get scared. If we were in Ruth for 16 weeks, and it's four chapters, what does that mean for 1 Corinthians with 16? (laughs) But we'll see. I'm sure the Lord will be good to us each step along the way. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. These are the words of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, The world, by wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Last time we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, we considered the preeminent power of the cross. We saw that in order for the cross to work out its mighty power in our lives, it must be preeminent in our thinking and our affections. The truth of the cross must shape our worldview and our perception of reality and how we define ourselves if we're to understand the great truths of life. The truth that Jesus Christ died upon the cross is relevant in every area of life. The preeminent power of the cross sets the stage, as it were, for the broader conversation of the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. Now, this is a very philosophical section of 1 Corinthians. So those of you who are interested in those types of things, the, the different schools of thought, this message is for you. In verse 18, we see the contrast presented first between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Those who are wise according to the flesh find the message of the cross to be foolishness. that They can't comprehend it. It makes no sense to them. But those who have abandoned worldly wisdom and exchanged it for the wisdom of God, to them the message of the cross is the power of salvation. So now in verses 19 through 21... Paul launches into a full-scale juxtaposition or comparison, this is a big word for comparison, of man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Paul is just going to uh, do, as it were, a Venn diagram. Think about this message as a Venn diagram, except it's not a Venn diagram because there's nothing in the middle. <laughs> there's, there's nothing in common with the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. But, but Paul is going to explain for us the, the foolishness of man's wisdom and the wisdom of God's wisdom. Now, why is this such a pressing issue for the Corinthians? Paul is is not just writing thoughts that just come to his mind, but he's addressing problems in the church. Why is this such a pressing issue? Well, because Corinth, as we've already seen, Corinth had a bad, bad habit of absorbing way too much of the culture around them. I'm glad Christians today don't have that problem, right? (laughs) Well, tongue-in-cheek, obviously. That's a big problem for Christians today. We're constantly being forced into the mold of the world around us. The the, the world tells us in order to be cool, in order to be wise, 
You got to look like them, sound like them, dress like them, talk like them, go where they go, watch what they watch, listen to what they listen to. Well, I want you to understand that's nothing new. That's not a new pressure. It might be heightened in 2021 because of the digital age that we live in. But that, that temptation, is, it's a heart issue. And the church at Corinth was dealing with these things. And so they were being all the time forced and compelled to, to be like the world around them. And so Paul is writing on issues that are relevant. And what was the world around them like? Well, the Greeks, that's where Corinth was. It was in Greece, right? Greek, the Greek was consumed and infatuated with wisdom. Wisdom was so important to the ancient Greek culture. They prided themselves with their obsession with philosophy. Men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they were the superstars of Greek culture. Think about it. Who do we talk about today? We talk about Jordan Peterson, and we talk about Ben Shapiro, and we talk about Rush Limbaugh, right? Those names are probably familiar to you. Well, back in the first century in Corinth, they talked about Aristotle, and they talked about Platonism and Socrates. And the Corinthians were lapping it up like a cat drinks milk. They couldn't get enough of this worldly wisdom. And in so doing, their spiritual growth was drastically stunted. You must understand that you cannot grow spiritually on the philosophies of men that are antithetical to the truths of God. These philosophies are man's attempt to answer life's biggest questions. Questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is our purpose? But see, when human philosophy answers these questions, it makes a very fatal flaw. The fatal flaw of human philosophy is that it puts man in the center. And everything revolves around man. On the contrary, God's wisdom teaches us that it is God and His Word that serve as the axis on which creation spins and moves and has its being. Any theology, any philosophy, any school of thought that puts man at the center is starting from a foundation that will ultimately crumble. You know, Christless conservatism, I'm talking about people that politically are conservative, we like a lot of the things they say, uh, we like a lot of what they believe, but ultimately that is not part of the solution, it's part of the problem. Because they have a really beautiful house and all the furniture looks really nice, but they have no foundation to withstand the storms of the Marxism and the anti-Christian thought that's going to come their way. We need to be like the man in Matthew 7 that builds his house upon a solid foundation. And that solid foundation is having the Word of God at the center. And so we don't want to look at these men as, as our enemies. And I'm not telling you that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, even though we have no evidence of them really being Christian, I'm not telling you that there's nothing you can learn from studying them. Just like I wouldn't say that about Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro. I think there is value in a lot of those types of men. But we have to remember that they're making a very fatal flaw by not having God and His Word at the center of all that they believe. And so we need to pray. That men who seem to have so many of the right answers, that they would see why. They would see why. You know, they're, they're fighting a war, and they have no idea why. But if they understand the gospel, and the, the real reason that God made man, and our real purpose in the world, then they'll, they'll see where this is all going, and it'll make sense. Why do we stand against abortion? Well, because man is made in the image of God. So on and so forth. I could do this with any number of issues, but God must be the center of our thinking. The reality of God and who He is must be more real to us than anything else. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to fall out of their love affair with human wisdom. Man's attempt to create a worldview on his own has no basis in reality. It's humanistic superstition and it can never attain to the knowledge of the truth. Understand that. Humanism can never attain to truth. 
And Paul does so by proclaiming God's ultimate victory over the wisdom of the world and laying bare the stark contrast between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And let me say this as we jump into the text. There are three different uh, philosophies. Okay, There is a folly to man, a foolishness to man, that is also a folly to God. That's one philosophy. There is a wisdom to man that is also folly to God. There's a wisdom of man that's a folly to God. But the third one, there is a folly or a foolishness to man that is wisdom to God. And that's what we need. That's what we need. There's something that is foolish to the world out there. It's foolish to the natural man. It's foolish to the unregenerated man. But it's wisdom to God. And that is what we must pursue. So, Look at verse 19. I want you to see first the emptiness of man's wisdom. The emptiness of man's wisdom. Paul begins in verse 19, and he quotes directly from Isaiah 29, 14 to demonstrate the insufficiency of human wisdom to lead men to a knowledge of salvation. He says, 1 Corinthians, verse 19, for it is written... And he's referring to Isaiah 29, 14, quoting straight from the Old Testament. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul is showing us that this is not just a New Testament truth. This contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, this is not just something that's unique to our day. But this is something that was true in the Old Testament. True in the New Testament, and it will always be true. For it is written. For it is recorded in the eternal Word of God. I will destroy. I will bring to nothing. This is, this is God speaking. When, when He quotes the prophet, this is God speaking. This is God telling us exactly what He's going to do to human wisdom. God is saying, I, I will take dead aim on human wisdom. I will take dead aim on the wisdom of this world. I will obliterate it and it will not stand. Pay attention to these verb phrases. Destroy. Bring to nothing. Notice how intensely serious God is about this. God is saying, I will attack it. I will assault it. I will lay it bare. When I am done, there's going to be nothing left. We must understand how God feels about worldly wisdom. We might not think it's that serious. We might not think it's that big of a danger to Christianity. But God says, I am absolutely, 100%, completely, totally against it. This is not a light or trivial matter. But this is something of which God has made Himself a personal enemy. God hates worldly wisdom. And He's going to completely silence it. He's going to completely silence it. He's going to shut the mouths of the worldly wise men. If we had a title for this portion, it would be wise men and a foolish God. That's how man looks at it. Wise men and a foolish God. And God says, I will show you. Look at verse 20. This verse is, as it were, a victory cry from the apostle. After having recorded God's consummate victory over worldly wisdom in the preceding verse, Paul issues... Four rhetorical questions which further submit the fact that the ways and thoughts of God are infinitely superior to the thoughts of man. Four rhetorical questions. That's a very common tactic of the Apostle Paul. He's already done that earlier in the chapter. He likes to use these rhetorical questions. The first three carry an implied negative answer and the fourth anticipates a positive answer. And again, this is his victory cry. God said in verse 19, I'm going to destroy worldly wisdom. And you can almost hear the taunt in Paul's voice as he asks these questions in verse 20. Look at them. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Those that God just said he would destroy and bring to nothing. After having decimated worldly wisdom, it's as if God is saying in verse 20, who's left? Are there any challengers left standing? Who's going to to take what I've written in my word? Who's going to take my wisdom and and, and challenge it? It's as if God is saying, bring it on. Bring it on. 
And absolutely no one is able to answer this challenge. After God gets through dealing with the wisdom of this world, there are no opponents left. Once you understand by the grace of God, the beauty of divine revelation, the philosophies of men just seem moronic and perverse. Those of you who, who, by the grace of God, have been made to believe the Scriptures, is there anything that that competes? Is there anything out there that, that, that could even be laid on the same shelf as God's Word in terms of its, its wisdom and its intelligence and its genius, this woven story of redemptive history spanning thousands of years as God works to save a people for His own name and glory? Is there, is there any worldly wisdom that can compete with the testimony of Scripture? Once your eyes are open. When your heart receives the the Word of God for what it is, the cunnings of man, all his theories and all his superstitions are exposed as the embodiment of worthlessness. Nothing compares to God's Word. Nothing compares to the truths in this book. Let's look specifically at these people that, that Paul calls out. The first is the wise. He says, where is the wise? This is a reference to the learned Greek. This is the scholar. Uh, this is the guy that sits uh, drinking hot tea, smoking a pipe, reading his books, wearing his tweed suit. He probably has a pocket watch in his front pocket. That's this guy, right? The intellectual. Uh, the, the Plato's and the Socrates. Those who followed their teachings. Those who are so skilled in logic. This is the the Richard Dawkins and the Stephen Hawking and the Voltaire of ancient Greece. This would be the talking heads on CNN or, or Fox News or MSNBC. Those who are so studied. Those who who know the answer to every question before you can even ask it. And they're always just pontificating what they believe to be the solution to all of life's problems. That's who Paul is calling out here. Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the wise? Secondly, he says, where is the scribe? Now this is a reference, not to the learned Greek, but to the learned Jew. Those who were entrusted with the studying and copying of the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically the law. The scribe was the one who was uh, trained in the law of God and entrusted to copy it and recopy it. Their heads were filled with religiosity, but their hearts were far from God. You know the spiritual condition of the Jews in the first century. Those who rejected the Messiah... Those who shouted, crucify Him, crucify Him. That's who Paul is calling out here. They had the Word of God right in front of them, yet they completely missed the wisdom of God. This group is a reference to those spiritual hucksters in our day who are deceived and deceive others as well, all under the cloak of religion. This is your Joel Osteens and your Benny Hens. This is your self-help. Your, your prosperity gospels. These are those who are, who are using religion as a cloak to push the same old man-made philosophical garbage. They're, they're like the scribe. They're like the atheist. They push the same ideology, but they pretend to be religious. And the wisdom of God strips naked their facade and leaves them without a leg to stand on. It exposes them for what they are. The third, he says, where is the disputer of this world? This word dispute refers to debate, the debater of this world. The last group here alludes to those who debated in the public square as a means of amusement. In the first century in Greece, a very common form of entertainment would be to go down to the town square and to sit in an auditorium and to listen to two men debate a particular issue. This was a, a, a very familiar type of amusement. And the Greeks were obsessed with this kind of entertainment. They loved it. And these debaters were so skilled in rhetoric and so eloquent in their delivery, the people would listen to them and they would hang on their every word. 
Now let me say this, there's nothing wrong with debate. Indeed, it, it, it's a very healthy discipline. And you should understand the laws of logic and the laws of rhetoric. And it's wonderful to have skills in oratory and public speaking. But when your fundamental rules of logic and reading and reason are not rooted in the wisdom of God, two secular humanists debating in the public square just becomes a spectacle of foolishness. Have you seen those types of debates on the news? When you have a God-hating political commentator and a God-hating expert come on the show and they begin to debate some issue and neither one of them have an ounce of godly wisdom, it's just foolishness. It's just a waste of air. That's who Paul is calling out. And as Paul asks these questions, it's as if, it's as if he's saying, where are all the smart people at? I thought you people were so smart. I thought you people were so intelligent. Where are you all at? Where are all those who think they can solve their own problems now? Where are all those who think they've arrived? Where are all those who think they've got it all figured out? See, the reason why these worldly philosophies are so attractive is because they appeal to human ego. And so Paul is kind of cutting with these these questions. A little bit of taunt and a little bit of mockery is in these questions because Paul knows that, that... These are things that have puffed them up with pride. These Corinthians are puffed up and they need to be brought back down to earth. And so Paul, after demonstrating God's statement on the wisdom of the world, he essentially says, where are all your smart people now? See, man takes so much pride in his supposed ability to figure everything out on his own. But let me tell you this, those who have convinced themselves of their own supreme intelligence are in reality the ones who are most deceived. You're in deep trouble the minute that you think that you as a mere man have the right or the ability to think your own thoughts, devise your own schemes, and live your own life autonomously and independently from the God that created you. You're in deep trouble. Uh, I don't need to know what God said about this issue. I've got it all figured out. Did any of you see the representative that said in Congress a while ago, God's opinion is of no matter to this Congress? That's what he said on the floor of Congress. I forget the issue they were debating. I believe it was Nadler, the same guy who did a lot of the trials back when they were investigating the former president. And he stood up in front of Congress because someone had, another representative had risen to speak on an issue and they read the Word of God and they quoted the Bible in defense of their position. And Nadler gets up and he says, God's Word is of no matter to this Congress. We don't care about what God has to say about it. We, we're smart enough to figure it out on our own. That's what he was saying. I pity that man. I fear for that man. He's deceived himself. So let me ask you, how will you answer life's biggest questions? How will you determine the purpose of your life? Let me urge you not to act on your own whims and fancies. You need to think before you feel. And you need to formulate your thoughts from a renewed mind. One that has been washed in the rich truths of the Word of God because that is the only place you will find authentic answers to life's questions. You need to abandon the vanity of man's wisdom and turn to the wisdom of God. And in this final rhetorical question, verse 20, we see the conclusion of God's decimation of worldly wisdom. Seeing that no one is able to answer these calls for the wise or the scribe or the disputer, the apostle concludes by saying this, asking this question, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? This question sets the stage for verse 21. It sums up the totality of God's encounter with the wisdom of this world. Man may appear to be so slick, he may seem so wise. 
But when he comes into contact with the wisdom of God, his foolishness is exposed. So look at verse 21. We've seen the emptiness of man's wisdom. Now I want you to see the efficacy of God's wisdom. The power of God's wisdom. The efficacy of God's wisdom. Verse 21, for after that, see that, that, that phrase, for after that, connected to verse 20. Yeah, chapter and verse divisions are so helpful for our learning, but you've got to understand when Paul was writing this, uh, there was no verse or chapter divisions. So Paul says this, verse 20, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in other words, Paul is saying, Yes, He has made foolish the wisdom of this world, and I'm about to tell you why. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Having shown the utter worthlessness and the futility of man's wisdom, Paul is going to unpack for us the wisdom of God. See, God has mocked the wisdom of this world and He's shown it to be of no value. And now He will reveal His perfect and immaculate divine wisdom. He says this, in the wisdom of God. We've moved away from the foolishness of worldly wisdom and we'll now see the divine genius of God's wisdom. And I want you to notice four things about the wisdom of God. First, God's wisdom is purposed by God. God's wisdom is purposed by God. Look at it. Verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now there's debate over the specific usage of the phrase in the wisdom of God as it relates to man's inability to know God. Now when it says, when it says this, that, me, uh, that man by his wisdom knew not God, the world by his wisdom knew not God, that is referring to knowing God in a salvific sense. Knowing God in a saving way. Obviously, uh, we would have to confess with Romans 1 that there is enough evidence in creation for all men to know that there is a God, but that worldly wisdom is not enough for us to know the true way of salvation. So when it says the world by His wisdom knew not God, it's speaking of knowing God in a salvific sense. But what, is it, what does it mean when it says in the wisdom of God at the beginning of verse 21? In the wisdom of God. Now, there's two uh, sides to this debate. The first could either be a reference uh, to the manifestation of God's wisdom in creation. That is, man can perceive something of the all-wise God from the created world that he sees around him, right? In the wisdom of God. So, in creation, man can see that there is a God, or the other interpretation of this in the wisdom of God could be a reference to the wise ordination of God. The wise ordination of God. That is, God has so determined that man can never come to know Him through his own wisdom. It says, the world by wisdom knew not God. Why can't the world come to know God through worldly wisdom? Because God has ordained it so. God has ordained it that man can never come to know Him on his own. Now, both of these interpretations, whether in the wisdom of God refers to in creation or in the wisdom of God refers to in God's ordinance, both of these interpretations are true and they actually help explain one another. See, God has established that man will never come to Him in a saving way through his own wisdom. Even though man has the evidence of God all around him in the created world, because of his sin-cursed sensibilities, this natural revelation is insufficient to lead man to a knowledge of the Savior. Why can't you go outside, look up at the sky, see that there is a God, and be saved? Is there something wrong with creation? No, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your heart. It's the curse of sin upon your heart. Adam did not need, in the garden before the fall, Adam did not need God to say, Adam, I am God. There is a God and I'm Him. Adam knew that there was a God. God walked with Adam. But what happened? The fall took place. The curse of sin affected man's perception of the world around him. We no longer can see the evidences of God in the same way that Adam did before the fall. And so this revelation, this general revelation, is insufficient for us. Even though we've 
have all the evidence, our sensibilities are not sufficient for us to know the true way of salvation and God in truth. In order to be saved, listen, in order to be saved, God must supernaturally reveal Himself and personally and directly come into the heart of man in a way that overcomes and does away with man's wisdom so that God might manifest His wisdom in man. Now, I know that this is deeper stuff, but I want to be faithful to the text. I don't want to skip over this. This is what Paul's talking about. We need to look at this. So, we, because of, because of the fall, our worldly wisdom cannot save us. We do not have, naturally, the ability to understand the truth about God. So, therefore, God must divinely intervene into our lives and reveal Himself to us in a supernatural way. That's called the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is nothing short of divine intervention. Salvation is a big deal. It is God doing what He didn't have to do for Adam, but He has to do for us. It is coming to us personally, and not in any kind of charismatic way, you'll understand, not an audible voice, but it is God coming to us through His Word and saying, there is a God, and I'm Him. And God has determined that this is the only way that man will ever know Him. Man will never be saved through self-esteem, through intellectualism, through positive thinking, through pulling himself up by the bootstraps, through solving life's problems, through self-help programs, or through anything else that man manufactures on his own. In fact, God hides himself from such men who are proud and boastful and think that they can come to God without any divine action or initiation. Turn back, hold your place in 1 Corinthians, and turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Look at Matthew 11 and verse 25. Matthew 11 and verse 25 says this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, Jesus is about to pray to God the Father. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Is he talking about literal babies? Is he talking about Tristan? Well, possibly. But no, he's not talking about literal babies. He's, he's making comparison here. He's saying God hides the truth about himself from proud, boastful, and arrogant men, and he reveals it to men who humble themselves like little babies. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. God is staunchly opposed to our arrogant know-it-allism. You will not be saved because you make better decisions than other people or think better thoughts than other people. In fact, our thoughts that are independent from God that are not according to His Word, that are not after His wisdom, only further our damnation. The more you try to figure it out on your own, the further away you're moving from God. And this is the way that God has purposed it to be. Salvation is by the direct revelation of God. God saves sinners by His sheer, sovereign grace in revealing Himself to them. When they can't come to Him, when they can't figure it out, when they can't understand His Word, He comes to them and makes Himself known in a mighty way. Why does God do this? Why has God ordained it to be so? Why has God not just given all men the natural ability to save themselves? Why? Well, if that were the case, who would get the glory? Man would get the glory. Man would be able to say, I am safe because I am smarter than other people. I am saved because I am wiser than other people. I'm a Christian because I make better decisions than other people. God says that's not how it is. God says if you're saved, you're saved because I revealed myself to you. And in so doing, God receives all the honor and all the glory for every sinner that He saves. None of the redeemed can boast in their own wisdom. None of us here tonight can attribute our own power or our own intellect. No, we must be stripped of our pride 
And we must confess that our salvation is all of God and none of us. God did not save me because I was smarter than anyone else. That's a humbling doctrine to receive. And the world, according to its wisdom, hates that truth. They hate it. It means they're not so hot after all. (laughs) But this is what the Word of God teaches. The wisdom of God is purposed of God. Secondly, I want you to see this. The wisdom of God is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. Verse 21. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world, by wisdom, knew not God. So this is a problem, right? The world doesn't know God. (laughs) But look at that phrase that comes right after the comma in verse 21. It pleased God. It pleased God. And he's going to go on to talk about the way that God does save sinners. But I want you to see this, that the wisdom of God pleases God. This sovereignly wise plan of salvation that was purposed by God in eternity is very pleasing to God. Is this not a great comfort to us? I mean, does this not fill our hearts with joy to know that God's chief delight is in the salvation of His people? It's not a a labor to God. It's not something that God does out of necessity. God loves to save sinners. God loves to redeem people. God loves to take men who who can't come to Him, men who are hopelessly lost, and He loves to come to them and, and save them and manifest His love to them. God loves to do that. The way of salvation originated in the good pleasure of God. Do you realize long before there was a you or a me, long before the world was ever created, God, who is omnipotent and omniscient, that He's all-powerful and all-knowing, God saw everything we'd ever done, everything we'd ever do. He saw a world filled with lost and dying sinners. And you know what God chose to do? Two things. First, He chose to go ahead and create that world. You think God didn't know about the fall before He created the world? (laughs) Think He was surprised when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit? Absolutely not. So God chose to create the world knowing that His people would become lost, hopelessly lost. But not only that, God, seeing our sinful wreck, chose to save a people for Himself. God was pleased with your salvation before you were ever born. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of man can't comprehend such a thing. But God's wisdom says that salvation began and was formed and was shaped by the pleasure of God. This is why, friend, when you humble yourself and come to God, you do not need to worry that He'll cast you out or reject you. People ask me, how can I go out and preach the gospel in the street or hand tracts out to people with such confidence? Because I know that God loves to save sinners. And I know that anyone who humbles themselves and comes to God, He's going to save them. Because He wants nothing more than to do that. God loves to save sinners. It brings Him immense joy to redeem those who repent and turn from their own efforts and come to an end of themselves and cast themselves at His feet. Those are the kind of people upon whom God loves to pour out His grace and mercy upon. Thirdly, the wisdom of God is perplexing to man. It's perplexing to man. It pleased God. Now watch this phrase. By the foolishness of preaching. God saves by the foolishness of preaching. This is the kind of foolishness that we talked about at the beginning. Remember I said there was a foolishness to man that is wisdom to God? That's what Paul is talking about in verse 21. By the foolishness of preaching. Now notice this. It does not say by foolish preaching. (laughs) We have a lot of that in our day. Foolish preaching. But that's not what he's talking about. He's He's saying... Preaching a message that the world deems as foolish by the foolishness of preaching. Now, what is he talking about? What is this foolish message that the world thinks to be so foolish? Well, do you remember verse 18? Look at it quickly. We looked at it last week. 
For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's the cross of Christ which men find foolish. They find bizarre. It's that cross, the message of the cross, that God in His wisdom has ordained, listen, as the exclusive means of salvation. Now why does the natural man think that to be so foolish? We don't think it to be foolish because we live in the 21st century. We live 2,000 years after the growth and expansion of Christianity. We, we've become desensitized to the truth of the message of the cross. Right? We wear it around our necks. We hang it on our walls. The cross to us is a religious symbol. So being saved through the preaching of the cross is not foolishness to us. right? It makes sense. We've heard it all of our lives. But you must understand that this was written to a first century audience. And to the first century Greeks, the cross was a barbaric and grotesque place of murder and execution. Okay, wearing a cross around your neck would be like wearing an electric chair around your neck. If you wore a cross around your neck in the first century, you were a sicko. And it was so shameful and it carried such reproach that the Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. The only people that were crucified were strangers and enemies of the empire. Crucifixion was reserved for the most heinous criminals. And this bloody death that occurred on the cross involved being nailed to a wooden tree and hanging for agony, sometimes for days, before the one crucified would finally die and be relieved of his torment. This violent scene was not a topic for discussion in everyday conversation. You didn't just talk about the cross around the dinner table. The cross was, was disgusting, was grotesque. It was this, this shameful cross. Are you, are you starting to see where Paul is going with this? this? This shameful cross that the world counted as reproachful that God chose to use as the means of salvation. That's why the world thinks it's foolish. The, the wisdom of man cannot understand how the death of Christ on the cross means the salvation of the world. The Greek would say, you mean to tell me that the death of some Jew on the cross fixed the eternal destiny of everyone that's ever lived? You mean to tell me that the, the bloody death of Jesus of Nazareth is the most important thing that's ever taken place? The Greek would say, foolish! And in, in a sense, we understand why they would say that, right? I mean, what did it look like? I don't want you to necessarily really envision, right? We don't want to think of God that way uh, as an image. But think about it. What did it look like to the Greek in the first century when Jesus was crucified? It wasn't a majestic scene. It, it wasn't powerful. It was, it was bloody. It was shameful. If you were alive in the first century, if you walked by Calvary's cross, you'd look away. You want nothing to do with it. The natural man would not look at the cross of Calvary and see, hey, that's the Messiah dying for the sins of His people. The natural man would see a bloodied and beaten Jew dying a shameful sinner's death. In the wisdom of man, Christ on the cross is the pinnacle of weakness. But in the wisdom of God, this gory crucifixion is the power that God is using to save the world. It is this cross and the Christ who died upon it which man finds to be so foolish that in the divine wisdom has been ordained and appointed to be the means of redeeming the world. Do you see that? Do you see it? This is what, this is what Paul is talking about. The wisdom of God has taken this despised and reproachful cross on Calvary's lonely hills and He's made it the means through which He will save the world. This is the wisdom of God. To, 
if you were, let's say, if you were God, what would you use to save the world? You'd use some marvelous figure that looked like Superman flying in with a cape and a robe. and a, I mean, you would use this wonderful figure that all people would look at and say, yeah, that is something. That's what you would use. And that's man's foolishness. God used the most unlikely thing. God used the most reproachful thing to be the most glorious thing. There's power through weakness. There's glory through shame. There's life through death. There's victory through apparent defeat. Oh, praise the Lord for He's done it. Who but our God could do such a thing? Who but Jehovah could do such a thing with the cross of Christ? And yet, apart from God revealing these truths to man, man is still incapable of seeing the beauty of God's wisdom. Now, you people get it. Because God has done a work in your heart. You understand what I'm talking about. But you go to the average person on the street and you explain this thing to them. I mean, man, what a wonderful message this is. You go up to them and you say, you won't believe what God has done. He, he's taking the most unlikely thing. He's taking the, the, the most shameful thing. And He's made it the, the, the only thing that can save you. What will they say? Same thing they said in the first century. Oh, get out of here with that foolishness, man. This is why the world is still perplexed by the victory of the gospel. But yet God is still pleased to reveal these truths to men today. And therefore we must adamantly oppose and staunchly reject any cause to make the gospel or the cross more palatable to man or substitute them for something more pleasing to man. You understand that any attempt to become more relevant or more appealing to man's wisdom is just an exercise in vanity. Every time someone says, oh, you need some special program to keep the young people in church. Oh, you need to have a big concert to attract people to church. I love things like that. I think they're wonderful. I'm not opposed to doing things to draw people in. But you understand that the only thing you need because the only thing that's ever going to do a work in someone's heart or life is the preaching of the cross. Our job is not to become relevant. Our job is to be the right kind of irrelevant. We want to be the thing that the world says, that's irrelevant, that's foolish. We must follow the wisdom of God and preach the God-ordained means of salvation, which is the cross of Christ. The wisdom of God is perplexing to man, but lastly, as we close, I want you to see the wisdom of God is the power of salvation. He ends this verse, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You've seen the vanity of human wisdom. You've seen how your own intellect will never be sufficient to save you. You're never going to save yourself by figuring it all out. And you've seen the wisdom of God. That salvation is owed to the perfect plan of the Almighty. So perhaps you're wondering, well, if I can't save myself by my own wisdom, what can I do? And so as we close, I want you to see that this text also reveals to us that in the wisdom of God, there is one and only one type of people that God saves. There's only one type of people that God saves. And He says it here, them that believe. Verse 21, them that believe. So no, you must not seek the wisdom of this world for the answers to all of life's questions. In fact, you need to quit trying to do that. You need to quit trying to figure it all out on your own. And you need to simply believe. Believe the Word of God. Believe that God will do what He says He will do. Believe that Christ is who He says He is. Believe that Christ accomplished what He said He accomplished. What does it mean to believe? First, to believe requires you first have a knowledge of the truth. You must know the Word of God. You must understand the facts of the gospel. You must know that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was risen again. As R.C. Sproul used to say, you'll never have God in your heart 
until you first have Him in your head. You cannot believe on a Jesus that you know nothing about. But that's not all there is to believing. It's the first step. Secondly, you must agree to the truth. The truth must deeply touch your heart. You must have heartfelt agreement with those facts. You must say, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. And it's not enough to have facts in your head floating about Jesus, but they must penetrate the depths of your heart. So many are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. 18 inches is the distance from the center of your brain to the center of your heart. Those facts must transfer down into your soul. But thirdly, and most importantly, when we talk about the the believing that God uses to save His people, you must place your complete trust in the truth. You must not only believe that Jesus died, but that He died for you. See, that's why I don't preach a gospel that says, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's why I don't just go out on the street and tell everyone Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because I want them to understand that if they are not believing on Jesus, they have no reason to think that anything He did applies to them at all. Because Jesus did what He did for those who believe. You must believe. You must believe that His death on the cross is the only thing sufficient to save your soul. That you need nothing else apart from the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died to pay your sin debt and give you everlasting life. So let me ask you, do you have this faith? Have you believed like this? If not, the cross will remain foolishness to you and you will never understand it. But if you forsake your wisdom, if you turn from worldly wisdom, and you begin to see the wisdom of God, and you humble yourself and call out upon the God who sent His Son to die upon the cross, the cross will be to you the power of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the privilege to read the Word of God, to preach the Word of God. What a beautiful portion of Scripture this is. Lord, this is a difficult portion of Scripture. I know it was troublesome even in my own preparations, and I pray that I accurately communicated the message of this text tonight, and that it would be a blessing to those here and to those who will listen via our online ministry. Lord, use the Word of God to save your people, to edify the saints, to grow your church, that Christ might be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.